Hi, everyone, and welcome to this What You Talking About Willis podcast. My name is Henry Willis, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Politics here at Halebury College in Melbourne, Victoria. Thank you for joining us as we discuss all things international relations, making connections between current world events and the VCE Global Politics curriculum. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What You're Talking About, Willis. Uh, in our previous episode, we spent some time talking about the causes of climate change as a global issue, and we did briefly mention some of the responses made to address those particular causes. Today, we're going to focus in a little bit more detail on the actual responses made by different elements of the international community to climate change um, and go through what you need to know in this particular um, area of study. And so what's probably important in terms of deciding which responses you look at for climate change will be the kind of key terms that you need to be able to address in the state design. And so in the state design, there's a requirement that you understand what unilateralism is for this particular area of study, which suggests that you're going to have to have an understanding of what a single-sided or an individual response to this particular issue is. Uh, You need to understand what international cooperation is. So in opposition to unilateralism, a stronger focus on how many states might work together in order to achieve a particular issue or respond to climate change. And there's also the key term crisis diplomacy, which refers to the diplomatic measures taken um, in immediate effect in response to an emerging crisis. Um, which is sort of a different type of international cooperation or a more specific type of international cooperation that you need to address. And so, again, there's a plural on responses for this key knowledge dot point, so you do need to know at least two responses. It may be worth knowing three. Again, if you want to write an essay on this topic, it would be worth knowing three. Um, But there are also some key concepts you need to cover using these, um, these materials, which might mean that knowing three responses could be beneficial to you. And so in terms of unilateral responses, there are a number of things that you could potentially look at. You might look at the individual efforts made by certain countries to address climate change. And so I've gone and picked out one of the world leaders, for example, which is Denmark, um, who have made pledges to reduce emissions by 70% by 2030 and to become carbon neutral by 2050. Um, And interestingly, Denmark's an example of a country who's been able to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by up to 50%, while also doubling the size of their own economy over the same time period, which shows that um, sort of going carbon neutral um, doesn't necessarily have to undermine your national interests, particularly in terms of your economic prosperity. So you can focus on um, examples like that. And then when it comes time to evaluating it, you can talk about, well, you know, Denmark has been incredibly successful. Um, They've made these really strong pledges to cut emissions by 70% um, compared to 1990 levels by 2030. Um, They've also pledged to end oil and gas exploration by 2050 and reinvesting those funds into retraining workers for jobs in greener technology. Um, Denmark are also constructing an artificial island in the North Sea that would have an enormous wind farm which would supply energy not only for Denmark, but it's for its neighbours as well. And so these are all the really sort of positive, beneficial things that Denmark are doing from a sort of unilateral point of view to try and address this issue of climate change. 
Uh, in contrast, um, one of the really interesting criticisms of this, of course, is that Denmark remains a very small country um, with minimal CO2 output and a population of roughly 6 million people. Um, and their Minister for Climate uh, makes this quote where he says, um, if Denmark disappeared tomorrow, the carbon reduction might not even register, which sort of highlights how unilaterally, you know, sometimes these small countries can do all the right things and yet their impact on the actual solution can be very, very small simply because of their size and scale relative to some of the bigger producers of CO2 emissions like China and America. And so that could make for an interesting evaluation. Alternatively, if you wanted another example of unilateralism, you could refer to the example that I mentioned last week in terms of China's reforestation plan, whereby China has pledged in 2020 to produce 36,000 square kilometres of new forest territory each year up until 2025, which is a fairly significant effort, um, which would amount to newly forested area the size of Belgium. So again, this is obviously a great step forward in terms of increasing the capacity of Chinese territory to absorb carbon and stop it from ending up in the atmosphere. What is an interesting criticism of this response, of course, is that China continues to do uh, things that are sort of counter um, any benefit that comes from um, reforesting its land. Um, they are still, for example, building 45 new coal-fired power plants over the next 10 years and are yet to reach their peak CO2 output, which would suggest that they're doing a lot of other things which are undermining that kind of benefit and good work. Um, the other thing that's also quite interesting is that China is the world's largest importer of timber which might suggest that, well, China might, might not be cutting down its own forests anymore, but it's certainly happy to purchase timber off people who are, um, which if you look at it in a global sense, um, while China may be planting more trees, um, their sort of significant appetite for timber, for construction materials in particular, um, means that other people are probably having to cut down trees to service those needs. And so there are some limitations to what China is doing in a unilateral sense here. And so both of those cases would be good little examples of unilateral efforts to address climate change. Um, the, the Danish example ties in more directly to the fossil fuel cause, whereas the Chinese example could be used to address both, but particularly the idea of deforestation. So both of those are good because you can use them to demonstrate whether the causes have or have not been addressed. In terms of international cooperation, we've already spent some significant time looking at COP26 and the Glasgow Climate Pact, so I won't spend too much time talking about that. That is a very good example of international cooperation. It's a global forum um, held by the United Nations. It was attended by 120 world leaders and 40,000 registered participants. Um, it had some successes in terms of um, the, the language of the Glasgow Pact with countries agreeing to phase down at least 40% of the world's existing 8,500 coal-fired power plants by 2030 um, and not building new ones, as well as the 100 states that agreed to end or reverse deforestation by 2030. So they're examples of linking to both of these individual causes of climate change. In terms of the limitations of this response, there are some good examples of how state interests will get in the way of effective responses to climate change here. Firstly, we had the Indian example with the Indian Environment Minister refusing to ratify or sign the Glasgow Pact unless the language of phasing out coal was changed to phasing down. He said that this reflects the national circumstances of emerging economies who still rely heavily on the burning of fossil fuels to meet their energy and food security needs. 
And so in that example, India were not willing to accept the idea of phasing out coal because their country still heavily depends upon it. China, similarly, as I've mentioned before, continues to build coal-fired power stations, which is obviously in direct contrast to this idea of phasing down the use of coal and not building new power plants. They're also yet to reach their peak CO2 output, which suggests that China are doing things which are not congruent with the values of this particular law that um, treaty that have been established. And so here we see the examples of collective efforts to address the issue of climate change versus the individual state interests about security, um, food security, um, energy security, which may stop countries, particularly big countries with big populations, um, from being able to, you know, to ratify and support these agreements. And there's a clear contrast, isn't there, between Denmark, a country of 6 million people, and China, India are countries of over, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Um, there are going to be some significant challenges there in terms of going green for those countries, as opposed to a small country like Denmark that has a very small population and has very limited um, CO2 output sort of issues to begin with. The last thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is this idea of crisis diplomacy. Now, this can be a little bit tricky when it comes to climate change because um, there, there are not many clear-cut examples of sort of emergency sessions being held to address um, this issue, even though I would argue that climate change really is um, an emergency situation. Unlike terrorism or conflict where something might be held in an emergency capacity to reflect, say, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or a new issue um, to do with terrorism. Um, the UN in particular has limited forums for crisis diplomacy um, when it comes to climate change, particularly because climate change um, is actually not traditionally considered to be um, an element of national security concern. And I think that actually could, itself could make for a really interesting example because at the end of last year, 2021, there was an emergency UN Security Council resolution proposed, um, which actually called to incorporate information on the security implications of climate change into the UN Security Council strategies for managing conflict. And so essentially this was an effort made to try and include climate change as a part of the dialogue that should be occurring at a Security Council level of the UN. And it demanded that the Secretary General make climate related security risks a central component of conflict resolution. So it was a really interesting attempt to try and um, securitize the issue of climate change and make it sort of have greater capacity to be addressed in a sort of crisis diplomacy style. Um, as you can imagine, um, even though 113 countries in the General Assembly supported the resolution and 12 of the 15 Security Council members supported the resolution, there was a couple of key blockers. Um, India voted against it, which was not crucial because India is not a permanent member of the Security Council, but the big issue was that Russia voted against it. And as a permanent member of the UN Security Council, uh, it means that the resolution did not pass. Um, China also abstained, um, meaning that they chose not to veto the resolution but refused to vote in favour of it. And India's representative to the UN Security Council stated that the Council is not the place to discuss either issue, um, suggesting that uh, climate change issues belong in forums like um, COP26, um, etc., and not in the UN Security Council. So, um, what I've tried to do here is show you how 
there's been limited success in using crisis diplomacy to address the issue of climate change, particularly in forums like the United Nations, because many key countries refuse to see it be sort of seen as an issue of national security. Um, it, it's not sort of fitting on that traditional view of security, which revolves around conflict and terrorism. Um, climate change is seen by many to be something different, even though the implications of climate change are far, far worse than any conflict or terrorism um, event could be. And so that is perhaps a good way that you can evaluate the, the limited nature of climate uh, crisis diplomacy in addressing a global issue like climate change. Okay. So that outlines the key responses to this issue and the way that you can use them to address things like unilateralism, international cooperation and crisis diplomacy. It's also worth keeping in the back of your mind the challenges to effective resolution because that is something which you may also need to address. So challenges are things that stop these responses from being effective. And so, of course, the obvious challenges are things like national interest and sovereignty, because they're the two things that really ultimately stop um, people from being able to address a particular issue. So obviously, we spoke about India and China in relation to COP26. Clearly, their national interests are not aligned with the global interests in that particular example. You could talk about the UN veto and Russia and the limitations of the UN Security Council is another significant challenge to effective climate change resolution um, and you can even talk about sort of limited um, size and impact um, the Denmark example one is an interesting one of how you can do everything right and still have minimal impact on the issue based on the lack of cooperation from your bigger partners in the global community and so that really highlights the global nature of the issue of climate change and how really a collective solution despite someone's best unilateral efforts um, may always be sort of necessary in order to address this issue. So make sure that you can explain the challenges, plural, that undermine the effectiveness of these particular responses. Okay, that's enough for responses on climate change. In the next episode, we'll talk about the key aspects, which are key features of climate change that could also be useful in terms of demonstrating the causes and key challenges as well. All right, everyone, thanks for listening again, and I'll speak to you next week. Cheers. Cheers.